Open your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 3, so we'll begin in 1 here in a few minutes. Zephaniah chapter 1. So, where were you two years ago, April 15th, 2019? What were you doing? Do you recall? It's completely possible that you were up to your eyeballs in tax receipts and other such paperwork, but if not, you probably were together with a, a billion or so of your closest friends looking at a screen at the stunning images that were coming out of Paris as the Notre Dame Cathedral was engulfed in flames. About two years ago now that that happened. Immediately the question was being asked, would it be rebuilt? Would it be restored? And the French president, Emmanuel Macron, immediately got on the airwaves and said, of course we're going to rebuild it. Absolutely, it'll be rebuilt. But what an interesting statement to make. For at that moment, I mean, the flames weren't even extinguished yet. No one knew how extensive the damage was. Anytime you have to do a rebuild, a restoration, there are some questions you ask. How bad is the damage? Can it be salvaged? If it cannot be salvaged, does it just, do you just utterly destroy it and start over again? And with something with an architectural icon like the Notre Dame Cathedral, if you tower it to the ground and rebuild it, well, it would just be a replica. Would people really come to see a replica? So there were a lot of questions about what should be done. And what will it cost? And is it worth the cost? And even if you've decided to rebuild, once uh, uh, President Macron has said, yes, we're going to rebuild it, it doesn't answer the next question. How? How will it be rebuilt? What will rebuilding look like in that context? You know, there's another famous uh, uh, building that has been refurbished and rebuilt any number of times. It's our own White House here in DC. And yet, one, it represents one approach to building and to refurbishing and to renewal and to restoration. I don't know if you know, know this or not, but the first occupant of the White House, President John Adams, could not conduct a global war from an uh, underground reinforced bunker. He couldn't do it. <laughs> but President Biden can. The building has been restored and renewed, but it's been changed along the way. And it represents one approach to refurbishing and restoring something. Keeping the outside essentially the same while making significant changes on the inside. Another a, a French um, architectural icon that underwent some refurbishing back in the 80s. You may remember, some of you who are old enough will remember the, the uproar when the, the Louvre, the, muse, the Musée de Louvre, the, the Louvre Museum was refurbished and they put that glass pyramid in the middle of that courtway, courtyard. So here was this Renaissance palace that had this modern all glass and steel pyramid and people were outraged, oh it doesn't fit, it doesn't go together, it doesn't match, it's all wrong. They took a different approach, and they said, we're going to redo it, we're going to rehab it, let's go ahead and modernize it. By the way, there were some proposals for the Notre Dame Cathedral. One of the proposals included an all-glass roof to Notre Dame. Thankfully, they rejected that. If you make the decision to restore, you also have to make the decision of what that restoration is going to look like. 
And even if you go with something that is essentially the same on the outside, you put back the wood roof on the Notre Dame Cathedral, do you perhaps put steel girders hidden away in there? Wouldn't be original, but it might be better. Do you add electricity? Do you maybe add a fire suppression system? Probably worth thinking about. What does restoration look like? And what does it cost? Those are important questions, and they're questions that Zephaniah addresses in his prophecy, a prophecy that came some 600 years before Christ. We're going to look at Zephaniah this morning. We're going to consider a, a brief introduction to the book of Zephaniah. We're going to look at the, the decreation, the destruction that is foretold in the book of Zephaniah. But unlike some of his predecessors, Zephaniah transitions beautifully to a description of the recreation, the restoration that follows the destruction. And so we're going to get to see a, a beautiful picture of that this morning. Zephaniah, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 3 and consider the, an introduction, the decreation, and the recreation. Before we do so, let's pray and ask God's direction. Lord, as we consider the message of Zephaniah, let us see in it the warning of destruction. Perhaps even more than that, let us see the promise of restoration through Christ our Savior. So in his name we pray this. Amen. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So what is the historical, I want to look at three things of means by means of introduction, look at the historical setting, I want to look a little bit at the sociological setting, and then I want to ask the question, what do these things matter? The historical setting, the sociological setting, and what difference, what, why do these things matter, what difference do they make? First, the historical setting. We're told there that he ministered in the days of King Josiah. Josiah took the throne sometime around 640 B.C., and he reigned until his death in 609. He was killed in battle fighting uh, King uh, uh, Necho of Egypt in 609 BC. So he had a reign of somewhere right around 30 years. What's going on in this time period? Well, when he took the throne in 640, uh, 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 Israel, the northern sister nation, had been gone for about 80 years, taken away by the Assyrians. 640, when he takes the throne in Judah, would be a good estimate of where of when the book of Nahum was written, which we looked at last week. Nahum written probably up as part of the uh, uh, diaspora up in Assyria itself and sent back to Judah. So we're looking at a time when the northern kingdom is gone and the southern kingdom has been under some pressure from Assyria, from Egypt, from some other outside forces. Uh, Assyria continues to be the dominant world power and would be up until 627 when Ashurbanipal died. And then Assyria began to collapse, finally being uh, totally overthrown in 612 BC. One other thing to help you set up the historical setting at the connection uh, Zephaniah, his ministry would have probably predated Jeremiah by only a couple of years. The odds are pretty good that the two knew each other and overlapped each other, and Jeremiah actually does make reference to the prophecy of Zephaniah. And so we, these, they're rough contemporaries. Jeremiah is a little younger than Zephaniah a, a hair later, but give you some idea of where they fall 
time period. So there's a little bit about the historical setting. I want to talk a little bit about the sociological setting. Did you notice anything unusual about this introduction? This is now our ninth week in the Minor Prophets, and we have had a chance to see some other introductions, and this one is unusual. Maybe you don't know this, and certainly I couldn't have rattled this off from memory, but I did the looking. Daniel, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Haggai, and Malachi. Those prophets, when they introduce their, when their works are introduced to us, there is no mention of any ancestor. None mentioned at all. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, and Jonah mention only the father, the immediate ancestor. Zechariah mentions two generations, father and grandfather, but there is some evidence from the book of Ezra that perhaps his father died when he was young and he was actually raised by his grandfather, which is why it goes back and mentions him. So about half of the prophets have no ancestor, about half have just one. You notice what we have here. Four generations listed. You have to ask yourself why. But if you ask why four, you could say, well, why not three or five or seven? Is there something uh, 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 significant about the number four? Not really. Three, seven, twelve, they play some symbolic roles in the scriptures, but four really doesn't. So the question is not about the four, but about the who. Where does it stop? Do you notice the name Hezekiah? Hezekiah was a king of Judah. Hezekiah was a king who spent a significant time um, trusting in the powers of this world, but eventually repented and trusted in the Lord. And because he did, Jerusalem was saved. He was an important king in Judah's history. And almost all scholars are agreed that the reason uh, we have four generations mentioned is so that we will know the royal lineage of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a descendant of a king. And therefore, he is a distant cousin of King Josiah. He is connected to the elite. Something interesting happens as we consider the sociological implications of Zephaniah. He makes no mention of the poor in the land. Many of the other prophets do. He does not. In fact, he makes no mention of the middle class in the land. When he mentions people at all, they are among the elite. They are the priests and the, the princes and the prophets of Judah. He is a minister among the upper echelons of society. And he's given access to those echelons by virtue of his own royal ancestry. So why does that matter? Why does the historical setting or his royal ancestry matter at all? Well, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 give an interesting account of the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was the, the uh, most important, the most extensive reformer in the history of Judah. In Judah's 300 plus years, no one else matched the, the uh, religious reforms that Josiah did. And when we look at 2 Chronicles, we see what spurred it on, what really gave him the Jews to be so zealous for the Lord was the discovery of the book of the law of the Lord. That's what it's called in 2 Chronicles 34, the book of the law of the Lord. Most scholars think it was probably a copy of Deuteronomy. 
It's easy for us to forget nowadays. We all have our Bibles. We carry them with us. Printing has gotten so affordable. Everybody can have a copy of the Bible. But back then, there were not many multiple copies of the Scriptures. It would take years to make a single copy of the Scriptures. It wasn't like everybody just had their own copy. And the temple had fallen into neglect and disuse. Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, is the evilest king in the history of God's people of Judah. And his father, Ammon, almost as bad. And so the temple had fallen into disrepair and disuse, and the law of God had been lost. It's found, it's read to the king, he rips his clothes, and he begins to zealously pursue uh, faithfulness to the Lord. But why? How is it that they even found the book of the law of the Lord? Well, they were cleaning out the temple. Why? Why were they cleaning out the temple? Because Josiah instructed them to. Why would he do that? What even so? If it was the the Bible that spurred him on to his reforms, how did he find the Bible in the first place? Most scholars are agreed that it was the ministry of Zephaniah. That Zephaniah's preaching to the court of of Judah, his access to the upper echelons of society, are probably what the Holy Spirit used to reach the heart of the young King Josiah so that he would become a reformer, and so that he would change the spiritual culture of the nation. You know, it's interesting. Zephaniah speaks not at all of the poor of the land, but because of his ministry to the powerful in the land, many poor were saved. Many of those who would never have access to the throne room of Judah benefited from what happened in that throne room. They were set on a course of religious faithfulness and true Christianity. So we see in Zephaniah a ministry that actually had impact on the world around him. There's a quick introduction. We could talk a lot more about it, but there's a quick introduction to the historical setting, the sociological setting, and why those things might matter. I want now to actually dive into some of the the content of of Zephaniah, and we'll continue reading there in chapter 1, picking up in verse 2. And This is really a look now at the the decreation, part two in the outline there. Zephaniah 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What did we see in our Old Testament reading this morning? What did it say? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Here we have the opposite of that. Everything and utterly. All that God has made is going to be unmade. It's going to be swept away. Verse 3, I will sweep away, now notice the order, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Let's note two things here. First of all, what was the order of creation in our Old Testament reading? If you flip back in your bulletin, you'll see there in verse 20, the fish were created. In verse 21, the birds were created. In verse 24, the livestock were created. And in verse 26, humanity was created. The order in Genesis 1 is fish, birds, livestock, humanity. What is the order here? It is humanity, beast, birds, fish. There is a very decided, uncreating, decreating motif going on in the opening of Zephaniah. We are to see here a declaration that God is going to undo this earth. 
He's going to de-create it. The other thing we ought to note is the extent. This is not the first time that God has wiped the earth clean to start over again. Most notably, at Noah's time, the earth was wiped clean for a, a new start. But did you notice in Noah's time, the fish, not only did they survive that judgment, they thrived. They never had it any better. This time around, even the fish are going to be affected. There's a, this is a more extensive re, uh, decreation and destruction. Picking up in verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So real quickly, the, the, the what, the why, the who, and the when of this, let's take a look at this. The what, I've already addressed kind of the what. It's a decreation. It's an unmaking of what exists. A destruction. And that motif continues through Zephaniah, if you were to keep reading it. Look down in, at verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. 14 through 17. The day of the Lord, is, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast, uh, uh, a war trumpet, and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. What is going on in Zephaniah? Well, the opening part of it is deconstruction, decreation, devastation. Why? Well, I left off in the middle of verse 17. Let's keep reading verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. You know, the why of God's destruction is the same here as it always is. I mentioned Noah earlier, and what does it tell us about then, about Noah's time? Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why did the flood come? Because of the wickedness of humanity. In the days of uh, 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 Abraham, God says to Abraham, I'm not yet going to give you the land of the Canaanites. I promised you the land of the Canaanites, but I'm not going to give it to you yet. Why not? Genesis 15 the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I'm not going to destroy them because there's still a chance of their redemption. They haven't completely hardened themselves against me. But once they do, I will wipe them out. God's destruction always comes for the same reason. Why is this happening? Because of sin. Always. Not necessarily because of your sin. Don't get it wrong. There are times when the, the righteous are caught up in the destruction of the wicked. And they suffer alongside the wicked. I'm not saying that if you have something bad happening in your life, it's because of your sin. But it is because of sin. That is always the case. What is going to ha what's happening here in the opening of Zephaniah? Decreation. Why? Because of humanity's sin. Who is affected? 
Well, chapter 2, and we're not going to read chapter 2, but chapter 2 actually itemizes any number of the surrounding nations around Judah. But chapters 1 and 3 focus in on Judah in particular. So who is affected? Well, the nations and the people. And, and by the way, that's lingo. If you're going to be fluent in Bibleese, you need to recognize those two terms. The nations almost always are the Gentiles, those out there, those who are not part of the people of God. Even in the book of Revelation, the destruction of the nations means not uh, 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 necessarily non-Jews, but it means those who are not redeemed. And the people are always God's people. But we do have some specificity. Go back to the part I opened up here with uh, chapter 1 and look at verse 4. What's going to be destroyed? The remnant of Baal. So who is going to be destroyed? Some versions may have Baal worship, the remnant of Baal worship. Let me read for you from one of the commentaries. Uh, Alec Mahir, excellent commentator. If you ever have one of his commentaries, they're almost always very good. Um, Alec Mahir, when he on this section right here, he says the following. Baal was the god of productivity. His function in Canaanite religion was to make land, animals, and humans fertile. Baal was another name for the gross, gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, a sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as the essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. Hmm. Never thought about it that way. It's really it's a wonderful insight. But he goes on. Professor Mottier goes on to say this. Baal was also the god of religious excitement and sexual free-for-all. Human sexual acts were publicly offered to him to prompt him to perform his work of fertilization. No wonder his officiants were called the frenzied ones. Thus, wherever excitement in religion becomes an end in itself, and where the cult of what helps replaces joy in what's truth, Baal is worshipped. One of the things that we see here in Zephaniah is a God's promise to destroy those who worship Baal, those who worship productivity, those who worship fertility, those who worship their bank accounts and their wealth and their pleasure in this life. Verse 4 goes on to say, idolatrous priests along with the priests, basically those who foster and who enable the worship of a false god. Verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven. Basically astrologers. Those who are into astrology. I don't think there are a lot of, 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 of Christians today who are astrologers, um, big time into astrology, but we, we do sometimes get a little careless. I mean, should we say things like thanking our lucky stars? I'm not sure we should thank our lucky stars. We should probably be a little careful about that. But I think the more realistic thing, more applicable thing in our world today is this issue of, of getting creation and creator in reverse priority. Getting creation and creator in reverse priority. You know, stewardship was a good thing. Christians once were, and I think should again be leaders in, in, in taking proper care of God's planet. But is it not possible that there are some environmentalists who cross a line and extol the creation above the creator? 
Do not some lift Mother Earth above the Heavenly Father? Those who would bow to creation are warned here by Zephaniah. Continuing in verse 5, those who bow down and swear to Yahweh and yet swear by Milcom. Those who blend religions. Those who, who take uh, the, the best of all the different faiths and say, we're going to pull it all together into something wonderful. Okay? I have Christ, but, but do you have a, a, a Buddha? That's fine. I can, get, I can get alongside a Buddha and support that. And Zephaniah warns that those who will swear by Yahweh and turn right around and swear by another god are warned about the destruction, the decreation that awaits them. Verse 6 makes reference to atheists. Uh, actually, the end of it makes reference not only just to actual out-and-out atheists, but those who are practical atheists. Uh, um, uh, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. You know, when we don't pray, we are functional atheists. Nothing God really can do about it anyway. We don't go to Him. Zephaniah warns all of them. So when is this going to happen? What's going to happen? There's going to be a decreation, a destruction. Why? Because of sin. Who's going to be caught up in it? Well, all the nations, ultimately, but specifically some of these sinners that are listed here. When is this going to happen? Well, what did we see in verse 14? The great day of the Lord. If you've been with us for any length of time in our Minor Prophet series, you are, have heard this phrase now many times, the day of the Lord. It is a day of God's judgment. It is a day of God coming in judgment. And there are, as we have seen in our study, there are days of the Lord. There are many times when God comes in judgment. The fall of Nineveh in 612 B.C., uh, still in Zephaniah's future, would be a day of the Lord, a judgment upon the Assyrians. And the fall of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. would be a day of the Lord, God's coming in judgment against his own people. And yet, what do we see there in... Uh, uh, go, not there. go over to three, chapter 3, verse 8. Look at uh, Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day, there is that phrase again, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So while we see that there are days of the Lord, judgments, we see that Zephaniah points to something out there still. The day of the Lord. One that transcends all previous judgments. One that is unlike any of the others. That ought to be a bit of a warning, by the way. If the others are but precursors of uh, foretaste, the one that awaits is going to be even worse. I encourage you this afternoon to read the book of Lamentations, an account of what happened in Jerusalem after the day of the Lord upon Jerusalem, after its destruction at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. It is an appalling and tear-invoking account of the misery of that city. 
was hell on earth in a very real way. And yet, it is only a foretaste of the day of the Lord. When is this? The day of the Lord is, the, 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 the when of the deconstruction is going to be the day of the Lord. There are many small days, but there is one big day. Now, there is something we need to, to realize here. Go back. He's saying in chapter 3, verse 8. I read 3, 8, but let's continue now into 3, 9. Um, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the day of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Notice we've transitioned from the theme of deconstruction into the theme of reconstruction, of recreation, of making things new. We've moved now to his theme of rebuilding. By the way, there's an interesting word here. The word translated pure, in my translation, this Hebrew word can mean pure, perfectly fine translation, but it can also mean clear, clear. Think about that. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a clear speech. And many of the commentators are saying, what we see here now is a reversal of Babel. That the speech that was blurred at Babel is being purified. So why? So that they may serve him with one accord. In verse 10, we see the scattering of Babel. The gathering is described in verse 10. That which was scattered at Babel is going to be regathered in that day. In verse 11, the, sin, the, the shame of sin will be reversed. In verse 13, the, the, the whole of our sin nature will be reversed. So when is this going to take place? When is this? This is what we want to hear about. Notice what he says there in verse 9. At that time. What time? Well, back to verse 8. The day of the Lord. You say, oh, I've got to wait for that to be somewhere way out in the future. Only if we misunderstand the day of the Lord. Keep reading in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never fear evil again. Did you notice our New Testament reading? Do you remember what it was about? Jesus was asked a question that was common to him. Are you going to restore the kingdom? Is this the time of the kingdom? They're waiting for this prophecy, this and many others, about the restoration of the kingdom. And they say to Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom? The disciples ask this question all the time. You may remember a year and a half ago we started the book of Acts. The book of Acts opens up, Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection, they're in the upper room, and what did the disciples say, say, to the, say to Jesus? Is now the time of the kingdom? Okay, fine, we've been waiting. Three years we've been your disciple. Three years we've been asking when you're going to restore the kingdom. Now you are resurrected. Is now the time of the kingdom? This was a common question, and it's one we're asking right now. When does the restoration begin? But what did Jesus say? 
What did he say in, 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 our, in our New Testament reading when he was asked? He says, look, the kingdom is in the midst of you. It's here. Now, some translations, I think, get this very wrong, and I think some of our thinking gets this very wrong. We tend to look at this, and we tend to say, uh, uh, some of the older translations, uh, uh, the, the kingdom of God is within you. Within you, we say, ah, the kingdom lives in me. God lives in me. But to whom was he speaking in our New Testament reading? It was not his disciples who asked on that occasion. It was the Pharisees. Is Jesus really saying to the Pharisees, to those who opposed his ministry, is he saying to them, the kingdom of God is within you? No. He's saying it's in your midst. As you physically stand here on this occasion, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. Why? Because a kingdom is a function of a king. Where there is a king, there is a kingdom. And he says, listen, the promised king of that Zephaniah talked about, the king of Israel, is here. I am he. What was the final charge for which Jesus died? He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus stands there amidst the, the, the Pharisees and says, the kingdom is here because I'm here. You see, the prophecy of Zephaniah began to be fulfilled when the king came and ushered in the restoration that comes with the kingdom. When is God's destructive judgment going to happen? What's going to happen in the day of the Lord? When is the recreation going to happen? It also happens in the day of the Lord. The day began. It's not fulfilled. It's not completed. It's not done. The day began when God the Son incarnate came as Jesus of Nazareth. So who will be the beneficiaries of God's recreation? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Zephaniah 3, 12. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. How did Jesus say it in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not a personality trait. Think about that. It can't be. If meekness were a personality trait, then inheriting the earth would belong to those who have a certain personality or who works to acquire a certain personality. But that would be salvation by works. Meekness is a state of mind, one we sang about in our last uh, hymn before the, the, the sermon. It's that state of mind of, of being toward God, humble with regard to what he requires. And as the song said, that's a state of mind that he gets. That's a state of the heart that he grants to us by his Holy Spirit working in us. It's a state of mind that says, I can't do it. You want perfection, Lord, and I can't be perfect. It's a state of mind that says, I, maybe, I, maybe, maybe not. I've tried, and I failed, and I realize I failed because I can't do this. And so now I come to you. That's what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. That's what Paul and the other apostles talk about, but that's what Zephaniah talks about here also. 
The ones who will survive are those who are humble and lowly with regard to God and what he requires of them. You know, the irony of this is in our, our instinct, when we hear about destruction coming, when we hear about a storm, when we hear about a catastrophe coming, our instinct is to run from the source of the catastrophe. And Zephaniah says, no, you have to do just the opposite. You have to run toward the source. God is bringing the destruction. Those who will be saved are the ones who run to him. Who go toward him. They will be sheltered. And they will be saved. Why? So when, you know, when is this recreation, this, this uh, restoration going to happen? Well, it began in the day of the Lord. It began when God the Son became the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth. Who will be the beneficiaries? Those who are humble, those who are meek, those in whom the Holy Spirit has wrought repentance and faith. Why? Why is God going to restore Look at verse, uh, uh, chapter 3 still, picking up in verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, and let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. <clears throat> What is your view of God's attitude towards salvation? What is your view of God's attitude towards salvation? This is not a restoration that is undertaken begrudgingly. Some of you know that we just had to rebuild a corner of our house. It had been neglected for years. There was a water leak, and it had done terrible damage. It's all rotted out. It was a mess. And we just had to restore. You know, when we get all done with that, it's just kind of, uh, I'm just glad it's over. It wasn't an exciting restoration. It wasn't something I rejoiced over. It was rot caused by, by the infiltration of what shouldn't have been there. But in the end, it was something I did not enjoy doing. Do you see here how this is described? The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. By the way, what does the name Jesus mean? God saves. Yahweh is salvation. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you. Excuse me just a moment. I have a friend up here. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of spiders. <clears throat> Sorry about that. He will re, uh, he will quiet you. He will exult over you with loud singing. <clears throat> so, here we go. All right. So here we go. This is what it might sound like. This is Scott. He is my child. Here he comes into my heaven. I loved him so very much, I gave my son Scott's life to win. It goes on. You want to hear the rest of it? God is going to sing. God is going to sing over us. 
He rejoices at the restoration and the recreation. He didn't do it begrudgingly. He wanted to do it. Think of the parables that Jesus brings in Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd rejoices when the sheep is found. The parable of the lost coin. The woman has lost something of value, and she's so excited when she finds it, she runs to tell her girlfriends, her neighbors. Of course, the well-known parable of the the prodigal son, or the lost son, is perhaps a better term in that context. The father doesn't say, oh good, you've come home. He runs to greet the lost son. Zephaniah foreshadows these parables of Jesus by telling the people 600 years before Jesus how God feels about salvation. He rejoices in it. You know, we're reminded of 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that brings us to the what. The what of the reconstruction, of the the recreation prophesied in Zephaniah. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Again, restoration and renewal. Uh, We see an undoing of the effects of sin. Verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. Very much like Nahum's message of salvation from our enemies. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Remember the movie Forrest Gump? Remember how the movie begins? He's in these leg braces, he can't run, and yet what ends up happening in the end? He's celebrated precisely because of his running. And that's kind of the picture here. Zephaniah, uh, uh, 2,600 years before Forrest Gump, is saying the Lord is going to take that which is your weakness, that which is the thing that holds you back, and he's going to make it the very thing that is celebrated, the thing of renown upon the earth. Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Gathering. What a great message then. The people of Israel are scattered among the Assyrians. It's only a few years before the people of Judah would be scattered among the Babylonians. And it feels like all hope is lost. And God says, no, 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 no. I will gather you back to celebrate your festivals. You know, while the steam was still rising from the Notre Dame Cathedral, President Macron promised to rebuild that cathedral. Since then, there have been a lot of decisions to be made about what that would look like. By the way, did you know that the original, those bell towers, they're squared off? They were supposed to have spires in the original design. There's a question for you. Do you go back to the unfinished, or do you go ahead, since you're putting all this money and time, go ahead and build the new of the spires that were supposed to be there anyway? Okay? You know, Notre Dame is being returned to its 2019 state. They're not going to put those spires on the bell towers. They're not going to put a glass roof in. They've made the decision to take it back to something that was pretty good. Pretty nice, but arguably imperfect. 
our restoration portrayed here is not a return to the condition that existed before the destruction. In the final day of the Lord, we will not be returned to this earth and this life, but we will be ushered into a new earth and a new life where we are made perfect, where we will be what we were always supposed to be, what we were created to be, what we were intended to be. It is in one sense a restoration, but it really is a recreation, a making new, and a fulfilling of the promise of what we were supposed to be. The new earth will be populated by a new humanity, the first of which is Jesus, the first perfect human, the first human being who is and who was and is who he was supposed to be. And then all of us who are in him will be made like him, restored, renewed, recreated. By the way, he said there was a question of cost surrounding the reconstruction of Notre Dame. Zephaniah doesn't say much about that issue, but we stand on this side of the cross and can look back at what restoration costs what renewal costs, what being recreated costs. God knew that cost up front. I have a feeling the French people are going to be hit with overruns and overruns and overruns. Nobody knows what that cost is going to be right now. But God knew full well what the cost was. The humiliation of his son, the degradation of his being, for the sake of redeeming us. It's a cost he bore willingly. It's a cost he bore with great joy and enthusiasm. Let us return now songs of joy and enthusiasm. If our Heavenly Father can be exuberant, surely we can as well. I pray, and we're going to close by singing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore You. Let's actually stand for the prayer. Lord, we are reminded through your prophet Zephaniah that while there is a destruction coming, a decreation, an undoing of this sinful world, you will follow that up. You are not going to leave us in heaps. You are not going to leave us among the rubble. But you are going to recreate this earth. More importantly, perhaps you are going to recreate us, making us into what we were intended to be, what we were designed to be. And let us be reminded also of the cost you paid to accomplish this. Giving Jesus Christ our Savior in our place for us. And Lord, we're amazed to hear through Zephaniah that you paid that price joyously with exuberance so that you could sing over Help us to hear this message and help us to be a people who are excited to sing for you. We pray this in Christ's name.